Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Allison Daniel is the guest on today's podcast. We met a little over a year ago attending gallery openings, and we started this conversation that just sort of extended itself over every time we'd see each other at another opening. She was the first person that I asked to come be on Scene is Forgetting because I never felt like I really got a chance to sit down and go over everything with her. We discuss in this interview her show that was just at the Knockdown Center in New York in conjunction with Art in General. She mistakenly says in the interview that it closes on June 8th. It closed on May 8th. We go into great detail about the installations, the sculptures, film, and the inroads that she's making in the deaf and hard of hearing communities. So, here's Allison. I wanted to start off talking about your recent show that uh, you just had a New York Times review for, quote from the New York Times. At its best, punk rock relies on an admixture of velocity, attitude, and volume, which is exactly what made last night's Deaf Club event a smash success. Congratulations. Thank you. So this was the culmination or sort of the end of the exhibition that was at the Knockdown Center. Yeah, Art in General, new commission. It's up for one more week. It comes down on the 8th of June. Okay. And it opened March 20. Fifth, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then la- this past Thursday was this performance, the Deaf Club, which I just pulled together and organized and curated the whole thing. But I didn't perform. Did you know that you wanted to do the Deaf Club at the beginning of the show? That was part of the proposal or not? It was not. I didn't know. I knew I wanted to do a performance component of some sort, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And that was actually what one of the things I just kind of, when we went to meet, when I went, I went in January to New York with Art in General to go to the Knockdown Center to meet with the people who run that space. And I was just kind of throwing out a lot of um, potential performance ideas based on seeing the space because that space is just looks gigantic. It's amazing. Looks it's, beautiful. It's so beautiful. And the people who run it are incredible and they're, um, they're just doing really interesting programming, and I think that space is about to be like something amazing. And we talked about the Deaf Club. Can you explain what it was about? Well, probably explain the show first and then explain the musicians and the punk show that came at the end. Yeah. The show that's at Art in General, there's one room that's just video installation. It's a two-channel um, video installation of scenes from this longer-form film project that I'm working on called The Tuba Thieves. There's this other room right next to where the film installation is that's all, that's just a a really big, large-scale installation that is related to the process of making the film. So it's basically this kind of expanded film installation project. The imagery that I'd seen online was aesthetically beautiful. It was really gorgeous. And it was very graphic in its layout, but then at the same time you were doing these things... um, the, the sound quilts or mm-hmm. what do you call them? Uh, soundproofers. Soundproofers, mm-hmm. but they're they're beautiful. They're really, mm-hmm. and, and they're in conjunction with or sort of 
put into the installation with these other sort of graphic layouts that are on the floor of Arrow, so people can actually mm-hmm. transition through the piece and walk on the work and sort of go through it. Yeah. Um, seeing that and seeing these sort of visual cues and everything that are actually in the work and then mixing that with the actual video that's going on in the other room and everything too is really, really gorgeous. Thank you. I I wanted the installation component to have this uh, very clear relationship to choreography and movement and like physicality. So there's this pattern on the floor that's actually a representation of the path that the Zamboni makes to clear away the snow that's produced from ice skating or hockey. And explain the relationship with the Zamboni. Every physical object that's in the show um, relates to these lists of references that I gave to three composers who made, who I invited, I commissioned them to make musical pieces that I then responded to and wrote a film to. So basically there's these like this order of, of me having learned about the fact that tubas were being stolen from high schools in Los Angeles. This happened in like 2011. So I, I heard these news stories about that, was really struck by that. And I, mostly I was really struck by the fact that the way that it was reported always talked about the thieves. And so I just kind of n- knew a few things and intuitively followed these like impulses that were coming up. And so I had this impulse to make a film called The Tuba Thieves, I had an impulse to make it by starting with the music and not knowing what the story was. What interested me about that story, too, was that really the impetus there, too, was that it was about the thieves to begin with on all the news cycles and everything else. And you'd said, like, over a period of time, you'd seen these these news releases on The Tuba Thieves, but nobody was talking about the children. Right, exactly. And that was the thing that... That was the image that was seared into my mind, was... These students, I had this very specific visual of students sitting in music class or in band practice. Without with instruments? Nothing, yeah, with nothing to do. And and so I just had this image of students listening, and I was really moved by that as an education. Now, you worked with the Centennial uh, High School Marching Band on the Tuba Thieves Project and also on a piece that you did for uh, ALAC mm-hmm. this last year as well, yeah. too, 2016. Yeah. yeah. Just a, I mean, it was really recently, just a few months ago. Well, f- so first of all, I started, I, I kept this notebook as I was learning of the tubas that were being stolen. So I have this notebook at home that's just like... Of all the tubas, which yeah. ones? Which yeah, ones like were taken? The dates. Really? And, yeah, it's like the dates, <laughs> the name of the high school, how many instruments were stolen. The police may them. want this. I know. That, yeah, I could probably help them, but they don't care. That's the problem. The police, this is like very low priority for the police. This leads me to another question, too. Is it low priority because of where the school is or because it's the musical instruments? Just no, because cause you mean like demographics? Is that yeah. what you mean? No, that, that was really interesting, actually, um, because... People brought up demographics during the actual performance piece at ALAC as well, too. Yeah, like to me or you overheard stuff. I overheard stuff, yeah. like during the performance, because ill-informed individuals who didn't know anything yeah. about you or your work or the fact you've been working with this high school or they... Where, where's the high school at? Compton. It is in Compton. Yeah. So they see a, uh, a marching band come in. Yeah. And it's all African-American kids. And Mexicans. Was it? Yeah. Okay. So it's really, really pretty evenly. It's but a, but it's a, it's definitely a, definitely no white kids. It is a minority marching band. Yep. And your chair is rolling right. away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rolling down the driveway. Right Sorry. Now. Um, 
but that, that's a question. Like, mm-hmm. how do you, and this is, I mean, this is a good thing too, be, to have a conversation about because as an artist, you've been there and you've been entrenched in sort of working with these people for a very long time and you know the community and you know the people who are are actually dealing with these issues, like the theft of like their musical instruments and everything. That became really interesting to me because, you know, like Manhattan Beach High School also had their tuba stolen and that's like a, I think, I'm, I'm not sure, they've never answered my phone calls, but I think that's a pretty wealthy school. So irregardless of demographics the tubas were being stolen well i guess my question is like not about the thefts or where they were being taken from i guess i was trying to lead into the question of like when you're dealing with a viewer Mm -hmm. who doesn't know your practice yeah or doesn't know the history of you as an artist how do you reconcile do do you put this information in front of them do you not do you not pay attention to it how do you how do you deal with that um you know what i mean yeah i know exactly what you're asking in the case of ALAC, the way that, okay, so yes, there will be people. So I would have been the person in the audience that was like, fuck this artist. They're just bringing in, you know, like they're just exploiting. Like I totally would have been that person in the audience that right. was, I mean, I wouldn't have said fuck this artist. I would have been like. What's hmm. going on? Yeah, I would have just had a lot of question marks in my head. I'm always that person. Like I. Well, and rightly so. I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm extremely interested in questions well, about race and ability and representation of people and how people participate in telling their stories. And well, I say how, rightly so too, because as an artist, I think it's always your job to make sure that you understand the position you're coming from mm-hmm. and have that be something that other people outside of your, your studio can sort of read and understand. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm pretty intense about. Like I, I feel like I, I haven't in a while, but I've definitely seen like sign language used a lot in art as metaphor. And By none. Just I mean, like I I see artists do this a lot because I think so many artists are so interested in language, and just because we're, you know we're dealing with a visual language, and so sign language is a visual language, and so I think sometimes that is really interesting to people but from the perspective of somebody who is hard of hearing and works with a lot of people who are deaf i always have this kind of like mm, like what's going on here and like just because you can't you can't utilize like a or i i mean one can people do all the time but i am i have a lot of a lot of uh like red flags fly up for me when i see um a, a sort of lack of engagement with the fact that there's like a whole culture here this isn't so just this is, we're not language. just talking about hard of hearing we're talking about like things in general like artwork in general or like not yeah. even artwork so social yeah i mean i i just i want people to be really responsible as artists like i just that's the kind of viewer i am like i want i want that level of like understandably yeah and so to go back to your question of like what do i how how do I kind of like guide viewers or, I mean, that wasn't exactly your question, but what do I do? I I definitely knew that some people at ALAC were before you went into it. I knew that people would probably, or could probably think that. And that was a huge aspect of how I went about working on that project. I specifically 
you know, when Summer approached me to do Summer from Joan, who yeah. actually yes, yeah, so put she this invited me as so Joan was invited by ALAC to host a performance. And for those who don't know, Joan is a wonderful nonprofit here in Los Angeles who puts on put on exhibitions. They've been around for about a year and change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just had their yeah, uh, year fundraiser. Yeah. Yeah, a great, great place. And it's, it's run great. by three fantastic women here yeah. in Los Angeles. And, and so Summer Guthrie was the person who I was talking to the most. And the and the very first question that, I mean, the very first conversation that we had about the performance, I, I threw out like three different ideas. And the one she really gravitated towards was the marching band performance idea. And I liked that idea too, but I was... I'm really, really concerned about that environment and how to invite the marching band in a way that would um, reflect the way that I've worked with them. Right. And I didn't want, um, I didn't want, the thing that I kept repeating over and over was that I didn't want them to just be fair entertainment. Exactly. And so I was really... Spectacle. Yeah, I didn't, I yeah. didn't want them to be... Um, like I didn't want it to be this transaction of like people coming in as viewers and them being like providing some sort of service. From my own experience being in that space when it actually happened, it didn't come across that way to me. You felt sort of this joy and like excitement of this thing happening mm -hmm. in the space with you and you almost felt a participant because you could see that the kids and everybody who were involved were really loving what they were doing and yeah. being in that space and yeah. having that happen and take place. It just, it was that emotion carried out through everybody. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. There there was um there it, it, my original um understanding of what was going to happen in the performance and how it had been directed was that there were going to be these extended moments when they were moving through the space um without making any sound. And then they asked one of the Giovanni the student who was the drum major, he asked me right before um, and when we're talking moving through the space, we're talking about moving through these aisles of yeah. art fair booths mm -hmm. with tons of people in the space. And they basically sees had to, to part for kids to like walk through. Yeah. And so when they were actually moving from each location that they would perform and play in, they were going to be doing that with minimal noise. And then... Giovanni at one point asked me something about it and I was like, just feel it. Like, what, what do you feel when you move through the space? And he felt loud. And that was what ended up He was up just happening. rolling. It was great. I it's mean, amazing. I, it was this really <laughs> wonderful moment where I was like, it's theirs. It's not, this is not mine. Like, this yeah. is, you know, yeah. we, we like, you let go on this. Yeah. And I mean, I always wanted it to be like that too. I went, I went to their, um, to their, high school for their band practices for about two weeks before like every day for two pretty much every day for two weeks before that performance happened. And, and one of the, the very first thing that I did was talk to them about deafness and like thinking about music from the perspective of deafness. And, um, yeah, I just kind of like, you know, posed that as an idea and like, what, what does that make you think? And what, how does that like how does that make you think about music and and then i told them about john cage mm -hmm. and then um and then i asked them about there's this one thing that's in one of the scenes that i filmed with them when they're at a high school football game and they performed this song when one of the football players got hurt where they would um 
it was just the saxophonist playing and all the rest of the band members would sit there and they would kind of do like this their right hand extended out towards the player and like do like magic fingers almost and it was really touching like I didn't know what they were doing or why they were doing it but I remember just it was so visual and so beautiful I mean it was sign language basically it was like you know healing this like hurt football player that was my understanding of it and so I asked them about it later and it turned out that the song that they were performing was Eminem's Mockingbird which is like Eminem's song (laughs) about um like like for his daughter you know like it's it's the song about him like basically wishing his daughter I'm gonna cut that song into the podcast for you (laughs) (laughs) and um I like the Centennial Marching Band's version so much better than Eminem did you go back and listen to the Eminem version you're like so I asked them about it and they were like oh yeah that's Mockingbird by Eminem and so then that night after the rehearsal I went home and listened to it (laughs) were you trying to picture like the hands going out like to the Eminem version you're like oh this doesn't work at all (laughs) but but it was really um I just I tell all of that because it was a really wonderful process because while I was sort of introducing them to some concepts of like you know the history of avant-garde music and like even thinking about this from a deaf perspective then we were finding these really interesting parallels between things that they were already doing with like you know with pop music or with Eminem and then I also had them do this Pauline Oliveros performance piece and so the fact that those two pieces ended up being performed at ALAC next to each other that they did a Pauline Oliveros and then an Eminem song together was just like, that's probably the first time sort of beautiful. those have ever been paired. <laughs> and, I, um, I and noticed that. Band, I noticed that in a lot of the, in some of the other work as well too, you, your first film night sky, mm-hmm. uh, which happened, correct me if I'm wrong during Performa 11. And it was in conjunction again with art in general. Yeah. That was the first thing I did with art in general. You worked with, uh, a crew that was half deaf and half hard of hearing, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, more or less. It was maybe not exactly that breakdown. But yeah, yeah, you said it was like mm-hmm. it, it broke down to like having the crew be a participant in this who mm-hmm. actually were experiencing this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also your composers, too. We have a mutual friend in con- common, uh, Christina Sun Kim. Mm-hmm. Um, she went to school with me at SVA. She was a year above me. How do you know, Christine? Um, I. Let's see, before I finished the edit for Night Sky, I invited Alex Sagade from My Barbarian yeah. um, over to watch. And Christine, by the way, is um, deaf. Yeah. Fully. She is yeah. not hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. So I invited Alex over, and he, at the time, was teaching at Bard, where she was in the MFA program. And he asked me if I knew her. Wait, she went to the MFA program at Bard too? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, after... After SVA? Mm-hmm. So yeah, she did so two think, MFA programs. Yeah, I think she did one in painting at SVA, right? I don't... To be honest with you, I don't even remember. I think she was in painting, and then at Bard, she did the experimental music program. Which is where she belonged. Yeah. Yeah, because, like... I think it... It probably opened up doorways to yeah. different ways of thinking. Yeah. So Alex told me about her. And then really quickly after he mentioned her, that was the first time I knew about her and what she was doing. Um, then her name just kept, people kept It's all her over the place. She is like. Now, now it is. But this was when she was in grad school. So it was just oh, really? people. Yeah. So it was just people who like specifically knew her. 
And um, and so even, for example, like the sign language interpreter that I was working with on Night Sky is friends with her in New York. And, um, and so all these people kind of kept mentioning her. And then there's a curator, um, Amanda Gambrell. Where at? She is in San Diego. She's getting her PhD, actually. And so she does, she's been curating these shows looking specifically at artists who are working around issues of disability. And so she curated Christine and, and I into a show together. And that's where you met? No, we met because of Nights. Okay, so we, so Alex, it was like many, many different people were like, have you heard about her? You need to and go meet this person? Her yeah. If she had heard about me. And so finally, I think one of us emailed. Was it anticlimactic? No, it was great. <laughs> it was climactic. Um, so then when I went to for Performa with Art in General, when, when I went to screen Night Sky, I was working with Lisa Reynolds, who's this amazing sign language interpreter who I've been working with basically for um, like five years or so now. And she she was performing... So Night Sky is always performed with live musical accompaniment or live sign language accompaniment, and they're not translations of one another. So the sign language accompaniment is its completely own narrative. It's its whole new thing. Yeah, and then the so the the film exists as two versions, and they're meant to acknowledge that there are two audiences, two crews. That's two, amazing. There's like lots and lots of parallel things happening, and I we were never interested in trying to translate specifically like some things are definitely made accessible and some things are specifically not in that film meaning like there are conversations that happen that are spoken without ever being captioned or in sign language and there are conversations that are signed that are never captioned for the hearing there's audience. a whole new film like that too right the tribes Wait, oh, West Tribes. Tribes. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have lots to say about that film too. But oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah, I was. I just met this with this filmmaker in New York this past week who was asking me what I thought about it, and I was like, "Well, I." Let's not go into that. <laughs> More importantly, let's go back to Night Sky. I want to, so. So how I met Christine is that Lisa, um, Lisa, when we were getting ready to perform her sign language version, we invited Christine as well as Doug Ridloff and Lauren Ridloff, who are, Doug, they're also based in New York. And so Christine is a deaf artist in New York. And then Lauren and Doug are performers. And like, so Doug has basically started this thing called ASL Slam, which um, is like slam poets that are doing sign language. Are they hard of hearing? They're the most of the majority of the audience is like deaf, hard of hearing. So, oh, interesting. So Doug started this, movement and then like so Doug and Lauren are just like you know big presences in the deaf community of New York and but so, Doug and Lauren are deaf or not yeah they're both they deaf also so Doug Lauren and Christine came and to art in general and helped Lisa and I just like make sure that the sign language was on um, accompaniment part, like, was right like, yeah that it was like interesting and doing what we thought it was doing and they had suggestions and tweaks and it was really fantastic to work so with. when you had two different versions of the same film mm-hmm watching the crowd watch the different versions. It's really interesting. Yeah, what was the, where were the differences? How did that work? Well, there's, so in Night Sky, there is, this is spoiler alert, but um, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there is um, about two-thirds of the way through the film, there's this monologue that's spoken by this woman, Vaughn Rachel, who 
it's it's this monologue that happens it's there's an animation two-thirds of the way into the film and there's this like a constellation in the sky that forms in the shape of a dog which is actually my dog who's deaf and um who's a boxer and i have a boxer so yeah they look very similar um and so that's that um voiceover of this animated dog like speaking from the sky down to this character um on the ground in the desert is um voiced by this woman von rachel who is hard of hearing um i would say she's almost completely deaf and so she has a speech impediment and interestingly she was the first wife of robert moore or of um alan capro wait yes of alan capro just interestingly (laughs) Uh, I went to grad school at UC Irvine and Yvonne Rayner was my mentor and I was trying to find like an older deaf woman to do this voice and Yvonne was like, you should talk to Vaughn Rachel. And so she knew Vaughn from, you know, like the sixties and, um, and so, uh, so anyway, that, that whole monologue that happens is there's no captions. It's just voiced and it's, when hearing people hear it, a lot of times it's, I think they think that it's like a computer voice. Oh, it's sort of it, modulated? Yeah. And, but in fact, it's actually just Vaughn's voice. And so, so there's this moment, and I've watched it happen every time I've ever screened it, where deaf people just get so annoyed because they have this experience all the time where they're watching films where somebody has like, and this actually kind what, of relates to ALAC too. What are they annoyed with? That, you know, like the filmmaker just like didn't even think about the deaf audience and just like, yeah. this is so aggravating. And Do you see typical. like shoulders shrug and yeah, like, like, yeah. And sometimes like visible kind of anger and really, yeah, it's, it's, and it's really particular. I, I mean, I, it's particular and it's purposeful. I made this decision really specifically at the time to not have that part be accessible. Um, and the reason I did that was because then when you get to the end of the film, the film ends with this monologue in sign language, which is not not access- accessible yeah. to another part of the Yeah, audience. it's not accessible to the hearing audience. And and there's this very specific thing that happens because when you watch um, this character's monologue in the end in sign language, the hearing audience thinks they know what she's talking about because of the nature of what's happening. It's already set up. You've told a narrative. Yeah. And she's making a lot of gestures to the sky. And so there's this whole thing that's already happened. You've dealt with the sky. You've dealt with the dog. They've already had this conversation. Exactly. And so there's, there's this assumption that happens that the hearing audience thinks they understand that she's like talking about what happened the night before. And in fact, it's not that at all. And there's this, it's a really complex, um, monologue and i never ever tell the hearing audience what what it is yeah i, I just i it's it's completely accessible to sign language interpreters and to the deaf audience so does it play with this idea of the the hearing audience sort of have expectations or think they understand what it's like or what's going on with a with someone who's hard of hearing no i think it's more just that you know being presented with this um with this sudden intimate understanding of the experience of not knowing right and not getting it and and just like that you sit with that you just sit with just don't know yeah it's just it's just not there i want to go ahead um 
So, but then there's this moment I've watched it happen many times where then the, the deaf audience is like, Oh yeah, that rules. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah. And, and in fact, I think that there's not just, not that it, I don't mean that they're saying, Oh, that rules that the hearing people aren't getting this, but I think like there's something more complex that happens, I hope. And I, th I think this is what I've gotten, but that there's this realization that there's a purposefulness and a thoughtfulness to like the things that happened throughout this entire thing were yeah purposely put there for you to get to the point where you are right now yeah seeing what's happening and understanding where we're going and that it becomes almost this like meta acknowledgement of experience like how so many deaf people are experiencing the hearing world and are forced to reconcile with that all the time or as Christine would say which she says in a lot of her interviews that being deaf is like living in a foreign country. And I think that that's a really beautiful way to articulate. I was never articulating it like that, but I think, you know, I'm, what I'm doing is presenting this experience that's, that's experienced so often by the deaf community. And I have this very specific position of being hard of hearing. So I'm kind of in between both of these worlds, like the deaf world and the hearing world. We were talking about this earlier. So, um, Hearing impaired is the is a uh, incorrect term. Yeah. In in the community. Yeah. It is hard of hearing. Yeah. So the deaf community uses the term hard of hearing, which I think to the hearing community sounds kind of like old school or PC to like like hard of. And I why? Explain why that is. It's it's specifically used. There's a lot of language choices that are used by the deaf community. Like for example. D is capitalized. Like the deaf community has chosen to capitalize D for deaf. Like when they're on everything to no. So if you say, um, uh, when they, they capitalize the D when it's talking about culture, deaf culture and deaf group and like groups of deaf people. But if you were to just say like, uh, the uh, dogs in the yard. Yeah. Like the deaf dog would not be capitalized. Right. It, it's when it's significant. Yeah. Or when it's gotcha. like referring to culture. Gotcha. Um, and which is really interesting because we were, you know, this New York Times article that came out, we were trying to, me and the and Lisa, my friend, the sign language interpreter, who was there, we were just talking to the guy who was writing about it because, you know, I've had this experience a lot of times where people who've written about my work, um, there's an exclusion thing that happens like when the when the article comes out and the language is messed up or or like problematic it automatically means that the audience that's that gets to like benefit celebrate from the this, fact that this is actually there it's a hearing audience only yeah because the deaf audience is being not being acknowledged when language is like sort of relegated to to the yeah. side so when people use the word like hearing impaired the reason that that word uh, that the word impaired is is like really frowned upon in the deaf community is yeah. because it implies that something's wrong and there's nothing wrong it's you know like there's nothing wrong <laughs> right it's for it completely makes sense yeah it's just one of those things it's i think it's a term it's just something that if you don't deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis you don't consider it mm -hmm. like I'm from, I'm from the Iowa, I'm from the Midwest. So there's a whole lot of things growing up in Iowa that I didn't even realize existed outside of Iowa. And I think it's very similar in that way where if you're sort of cu 
culturally stunted in any type of way, you you don't take the time to recognize sort of what's outside of your your purview. Yeah, I'm I'm hesitating too when I say so when I'm saying there's nothing wrong, I'm catching myself from saying there's nothing wrong. It's just different. I'm no longer saying it's just different. Because you used recently, to say that. I did like up until a few months ago, but and I just read this like really really great article um and i can't remember who this who this is by it was just like somebody in the deaf community posted it on facebook and i was reading it and it was it was about the problematic aspect of trying to sugarcoat everything and say like oh you don't have a disability you're just different which is like right. also demeaning because it's pretty it, it's pretty fucking condescending yeah, it's condescending, and also it doesn't acknowledge that, like, there are many, many difficult things about having disabilities. Like, there are real experiences that are challenging. Um, it's not like what I'm trying to do is be like, we're all fine together, you know? Like, that's not at all like, the goal. I think that still, though, the term impaired, it just, like, it reinforces this kind of, like, position of whoever's using that term as like normal and as like in a in sort of a position of determining this experience right. of the deaf and hard of hearing and also there's this whole movement of the deaf and hard of hearing um celebrating who they are and like celebrating their culture which is this rich vibrant culture and um yeah it's I, support that totally so yeah I, so many things i didn't even realize there's a lot i mean there's yeah there's many many things and actually like at the deaf deaf club performance that just happened this past week um i there were a bunch of moments where i was um just really struck by how separate the community is from the hearing world in what it, way in well, so what, many ways. I guess but, I should ask more specifically, what actions during the, and I don't know if we ever explained what the actual oh yeah. club, it was, yeah. it, was a, it was a bunch of punk bands playing at the Knockdown Center? Yeah, it was three punk bands that were all related to the filming. Okay, so yeah, to, to even back up more. So I, the Tuba Thieves, this film, the way that I've been making it is I, it, it, the entire thing has sort of happened backwards. It so sounds like it's never ending. Like it, oh it's God, it might never end. <laughs> I really, in a good way. I really in, a, in a really good way. End. So you have, and let me, it, correct me if I get any of this wrong again, but um, the what I've read about it and what I've seen, it it comes in in pieces mm -hmm. and there's different scenes. So even in the, the pieces at the Knockdown Center, you signify some of those scenes in some of the visual aspects of the installation. So yeah. you'll have uh, cues that'll be like 53 or 49. Those will be the specific scene numbers within the screenplay. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're actually showing some of these, or the, the Tuba Thieves, when you're showing it, you are showing it out of sequence sometimes. Yeah, and... Often at the knockdown center, it's actually in order. Like it is actually starting. It like I mean the whole thing. There's many many missing parts. But you film them out of sequence too. I filmed that, yeah. I, which that's normal in filmmaking. For film. Um, but I'm just showing it before the whole thing is done, which is not normal. At do you all. do you have a set? Is the story written completely? Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. So the what? Plans done. How far through the screenplay are you in your scenes? Oh, I've just done... a guesstimate. Three quarters? No, no, no. I think maybe like almost half. And how many scenes do you have filmed? This is a the reason I'm pausing is because this is a weird thing about filmmaking. So the screenplay, like you'll so this scene of us right now in here recording could uh-huh. be scene number whatever, twenty six. Yep. And then we just step outside right here and that's scene twenty seven, just because there's like a location Transition. a slight location shift. Yeah. But when we're filming it, we would probably film everything that's happening in this location. At the together. same time. So it could be like six scenes in the screenplay, mm-hmm. but it will all kind of get edited together as like one thing. So it's um, it's slightly misleading like to say that I've filmed, I think I've filmed like 30 something scenes or 40 scenes or something, but that is like six locations or something like that. Right. You know? So the numbers are somewhat arbitrary. Well, I guess when I'm asking like three quarters, I don't mean like, are you three quarters of the way done with like the film itself and in chronological order, I guess. With the screenplay, I'm about, I'm almost, I'm less than halfway done. Like. How many hours of footage do you have so far? Edited footage. Oh, I mean. uh, Like the stuff that you're showing right now at the knockdown center. There's 52 minutes of That's, edited footage that yeah. you're actually showing as yeah. finished work. Yeah, but that wouldn't go, that wouldn't be a feature film. No, absolutely. That yeah. would be, because this edit is really specific to art and The locations and, and to the knockdown center and everything else. Too. Yeah, and also just watching it as like a two-channel installation in an art context, I can play with time in a very different way. Well, this than, is, I, I just dealt with this too. I had a show in New York. And dealing like the day before my show. I know we were at the same time. We like Mm -hmm. hit and we had this conversation. We had the, by the way, you wrote me over um, Messenger and we were talking um, about sort of this postpartum of like opening shows and dealing with that. I wanted to get into that a little bit too, but I just wanted to say. Your first podcast is going to be nine hours long. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. But this, I just wanted to say though, getting that like, getting that message from you was really nice oh yeah i thought it was just it was very heartening and like i was at the same time yeah we're going through the same shit yeah and to have a conversation and like out of nowhere too because we had been talking and you and i don't know each other incredibly well we've run into each other in la a few times and we get into pretty deep conversations when we talk to each other all of like a handful of times but to get that that message out of nowhere and just to be like genuinely like asking what's going on or do you feel this way or how are we dealing with this stuff together to be completely honest, it's one of the reasons I started the podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah, because it was, Great. we're all dealing with these things at the same time. And to have other artists to sort of like lean on and sort of like have these conversations with. Now, that being said, you did get a New York Times review immediately after we had that conversation. So I'm assuming the postpartum thing sort of went away a little bit when that was taking place. Um, <laughs> that's funny. I had, um, I mean, this past week when or when I was in New York I was um I, I'm a meditator and oh really a Buddhist practice and I was you do sound sound baths and stuff um I well there's a sound bath in night sky um, is it really yeah 
And I don't, I don't do sound baths as part of my meditation. You sound practice. so LA right now. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. I love LA. <laughs> I do too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I also made like a really good smoothie before I came over here. It was lots of raw juice, whatever. I don't, any raw fruits. And <laughs> you know what? Um, it's good to be very LA. I think, um, yeah, anyway, when I was in New York, I was really trying to be very present with how I was feeling. And there were, it was interesting, like the first day that I was there when I was just like, this is for the installation of the show. This is for, this is just this past week when I was there for the, for the performance. And so the first day I was there, I was just having kind of like a sort of down day and and just like watching it like just watching how i was feeling and i always get that way when i go back to new york for the first day yeah maybe it was just i don't know i don't maybe it didn't have anything to do with the show or anything i'm i'm not really sure what it was about but just was it just was and i knew that the new york times thing was going to happen i found out oh really yeah the because they were there taking photos like obviously somebody's on site taking those images yeah but i knew so when the show opened there was the possibility that that was going to happen they had reached out to the knockdown center because they wanted to come to the deaf club so we knew that there was a possibility that there might be this new york times how'd they find out about it pr from knockdown and art in general no idea well this is how the shit works like art in general hires somebody who does the pr for yeah I have no idea if it was knocked down. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. That wasn't communicated to me, like how that was happening. And it wasn't definite when right. the show opened. That was just kind of something that had been floated. I'm, I am always curious about that shit because I want to know how to do it the next time too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't have anything to do with it. it yeah. Just, no, no, no. It's, it's part of the institution. Yeah. That's and, how they roll. And so like maybe a day, the day before I left to you go found to out. New York. Last week, I found out that it was confirmed that they were going to do it. And so that was really exciting, too, because then I got to talk to the performers about it, except that it made Vern, the sign language interpreter, Stressed out. so nervous. Oh, seriously? <laughs> I mean, I think he, he was already nervous, but then he was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to vomit all over the stage, which was great because I was like, it's so It's a punk show, dude. Like, just do whatever. Just throw up. <laughs> yeah. And um and but then you know so I like had this day where I first got there and I wasn't. I was uh, I've been at that like, show, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I've been at that vomit show. <laughs> very Gigi Allen. I'm really glad nobody vomited. Yeah. Okay. Actually. Sorry. Go ahead. But, um, and then yeah, by the time that the article came out, I was feeling really good, and I was just like, "Is this? Is this just like an ego satisfaction thing happening?" And I actually don't think it is. I think I was. So what, what, what do you mean? Is what an ego satisfaction thing? Like, like that the New York Times article happened. Like, like are you happy because you're happy about did, it? Or? Like, did that just, was I just feeling good because. Right. Oh, or because, was it because right. this thing was culminating into the show that was yeah. going to take place? I, I do think actually like I was feeling really good because I truly love, like there's a lot of parts about making art that, sucks hard as hell <laughs> and right hard and is hard and but there there are just those moments where you recognize like which parts you love and why and this you do it and organizing the show and working with all the performers that's the stuff that's just like and that was the same with 
ALAC and like. It's ending on the right note. Whenever those things take place and you're able to do like that performance piece at the end. Yeah, but it's that process. It's like this collaborative process. And I really do feel like maybe my strength and what I bring is this, um, is this really, um, is this attention to the complexity of communicating and whether it's really, truly complex, like we're working with sign language and multiple languages and, and trying to navigate how audiences like understand these forms of communication, or it's just me working with somebody else to get to an idea. That's the part where I just, I feel so solid. Like, I feel like that's why I'm here to do this stuff. It's just like profound on a level of, on a level that's con consistently moving to me, you know, where I just like, I don't, I, maybe I can't articulate it in the moment, but there's something happening where it's just like, right. Okay, this is like there's a groundswell of emotion that's sort of coming up through you at that moment. Yeah, and it's like several things clicking together in this very harmonious way. Isn't it sort of amazing when you get into a space or you get into the show and you hit that point where like you know that it's happening and you can feel it? Yeah, you can totally feel and it. And then the flip side where it's, it's absolutely horrible, where yeah, we were talking on the messaging, where it's like, yeah. holy crap. <laughs> Like this is, and this is one of the things too, and I don't, like hell. Like artists don't often, I mean, artists yeah. talk about it, I think in like small circles, but like, and with your like close friends, but you don't like get done with a show and then go to everybody like, holy shit, I feel like crap. I think I was saying that to a bunch of people, like, <laughs> like I, I kept saying, like people would be like, how was it? And I know that the answer I hate they that want question. Is... I, everybody, how many people ask that damn question? Like, <laughs> stop asking me. Or the, the one that builds up to it, are you excited? <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of excited. But more, more to the point, you're making me nervous. Stop asking or me. Or like, what if my answer is, I actually just want to curl up into a fetal position and cry. I just want to <laughs> be left alone. Want, you don't want to hear that. But that's how I feel. Or like. You know, when people are like, how was it? And I'm, my response is like, it was hard. And then I feel this weird sense of like, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. I they don't want to hear it. You, you see the automatic reaction of somebody when you actually say those yeah, things. really uncomfortable. Oh, they're super uncomfortable. They don't know how to react to it. They yeah. just want the easy out. And I don't know the easy out. I just was not You know what? I don't do the easy <laughs> out a lot of the time because I want to see them get uncomfortable. Oh, man. I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> like sort of sucked now yeah, anymore. Like I just sort of, I let it go. I let it sort of roll off and just sort of deal with it. Like what it, people want to hear what they want to hear. And they're not asking because they're really good friends. Yeah. You know, like the really good friends you like have the conversation with and you're like, it's easy to, to sort of express those feelings. And I think that emotion comes from, and we talked about this a little bit over, over, over that message was that, you build up and you're putting so much energy into something and you let it all out. And then you don't know necessarily where to put that. You expect something like miraculous to happen at the end of the thing, something like sort of amazing. And like you want this sort of explosion and maybe that's what the, the band, the band's playing and everything at the end was for you, which yeah. is a great way to end. If you could end every show like that, I know. Holy Christ. Punk show. Like, it's Oh, it'd be so amazing. <laughs> it's really punk, you should just do that. That should be your thing. Now you ended every <laughs> with a, with the, with the deaf club. I did think, I mean, somebody asked me recently, um, if, 
I was going to do one in LA and I was like, oh, I totally could. Why the hell not? Wait, did we explain what the Deaf Club was? I feel like I No, we, we jumped off it. Oh, we went into something else <laughs> off of it too. I was like, I want to talk okay, about wait. that. But okay, so Deaf Club. 30 minutes ago, I should. In, okay, edit, re edit this. So insert this. It, or, it'll just be this choppy. Yeah. <laughs> it'll sound like a computer saying everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, you don't have to edit. I don't do whatever you want. But okay, so in 1979. We're going way back. I yeah. didn't expect this. Yeah. In 1979, there was um, this guy whose name is Robert Hanrahan, who um, emailed me this week, actually, which was amazing. This was in San Francisco? Yeah. So in San Francisco, the Mubahay Garden, Mubahay Gardens. I don't know how you pronounce this. I've never said this out loud. Do you know? No, no I have no clue. I read so, it today, but yeah. I didn't. Actually, no, I, this is me often. I don't say things out loud because I will mispronounce them. <laughs> well, I, I probably just did. So the Mubahai Gardens, or however you say it. Sounds great. Was this like the main punk venue in San Francisco? And I guess there was some strife going on and people were wanting to separate from this location for various reasons, maybe having to do with management or whatever, you know. And, um, and this guy, Robert Hammerhand, was walking by the deaf club and saw the sign the deaf club and thought it was like a music venue and um and what was it really a deaf social club okay so we walked in saw that it was all deaf people supposedly wrote on a napkin to the bartender or yeah just can i host a punk show here and they said yes and so for nine months this became like this site of novelty to i think the punk community where they were like this is weird and but amazing. was it always was there a mix of deaf people there was yeah, at the always. shows all the time always because it was an actual deaf social club like that's how it functioned throughout the day so you'd and have a really interesting mix of non people who weren't deaf and people who were deaf yeah and in fact that's socially engaging yeah because that's actually an interesting way to say this too is that you know like deafness is very democratic it doesn't you know there's no like anytime you have groups of deaf people you have really diverse groups of people that are gathering because the deaf community you know deafness like can affect anyone, Be anybody everyone yeah so before you know there was like uh like you know like like deaf communities have never been segregated racially for example like so back when you know white and black people were never hanging out in the deaf community they were hanging out so you have these like really oh, interesting, interesting i never even considered that yeah so you have these the, so so that community at the like even just within the little micro community of the deaf community in san francisco that was hanging out there was incredibly diverse and so then you have all of a sudden these punks that come Showing in up. and join that group and there's <laughs> A lot of um, anecdotes that exist from the punks that were just like, this is weird and amazing and crazy. And um, and that's funny and that's really charming. Uh, but when I learned about this, um, I just became really curious, you know, similar to the way I was curious about like, well, what are these high school students like? What's their experience of these tubas being stolen? I was curious about like, well, what's the deaf perspective on these punks having come into this space? And it's so that really interested me i started doing research on it and then um decided to restage 
I've learned that a lot of the photos that Bruce Connor took of the punk community from San Francisco happened at the Deaf Club. So we restaged this very last night that happened in 1980 at the Deaf Club before it closed down because the noise was too loud. How did you restage it? And by the way, that is the one of the most amazing parts of the story. They closed down the club because of noise complaints. Yeah. I mean, there were other things too, like somebody had actually fallen off of the top of the building and died on the Well, okay, ground. that was not in the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> there, I mean, there were, basically there was like a, a, a kind of very quickly growing sort of controversy. Sort of got out of control quickly. Yeah, it got out of control really quickly, like somebody died okay. falling off well, the top of the building. But the noise was the thing that officially like bothered yeah so what was how was how did the restaging take place what did you do to restage the exact same night or how did it yeah so i well i did a lot of as much research as i could which involved speaking to this guy david and swinger who wrote this book left hand of the dial which is about west coast punk and there's a chapter on the deaf club and he was great. He was super helpful. I reached out to him and we emailed a lot. He ended up actually writing the dialogue in my scene. And um, Oh, really? For for what part? For, for the Deaf Club, for scene 22. Okay, so days. one of the other things that took place during the Deaf Club was that there were actually scenes between the punk shows and everything else, right? At the Knockdown Center? or at So at the Knockdown Center, there's a room with five or six. Uh, scenes from the Tuba Thieves. One of them is this reenactment of reenactment the Def, of the Deaf Club of the Deaf Club gotcha. of, the, of the last night in 1980 of the Deaf Club. So, so in in my installation, there's one scene that is these tubas being stolen from two different high schools, from Whittier High School and from Centennial High School. Um, that's the opening scene in the film. The next scene is um, the Deaf Club. The scene after that is a reenactment of the 1952 premiere of John Cage's 433 at the the Maverick Concert Hall, which is in Woodstock. The next scene is... um, uh, What is the next scene? Oh, the next scene is the Centennial High School band performing at this football game in Compton. And then the scene after that is the main character of the entire film of the screenplay, whose name is... Her name is Nike Prince, and she's a drummer. She's deaf. And so it's a, a scene of her, like, at an L.A. music show, just, like, watching this um, these two performers. And then there's this last scene of these um, plants kind of, like, singing in the back of a moving van. And the, the voices that they're doing is Christine Sunkim's voice. So, so like, her voice is, is like being channeled through these like plants that are vibrating in the back of a van. So that's, that's like the film element that's at art in general at the knockdown center. And one of those scenes is the deaf club. And so, and, and so that's what I filmed two years ago. And I filmed that at PS one in their print shop. So PS one has this space called the print shop that like they have music shows at. And so we filmed it two years ago with like 60, I think 60 people from the deaf community in New York, and then about 40 hearing punks. And we were really, really very true to 1979 in the music and in the clothing and in the everything. Like, you know, so it was no, like spot on. It's, it's spot on. It's spot on to the point that I'm so proud to say that like people watch it and they think there's I think it's watching footage, something from, that's amazing. And there's no archival footage. <laughs> So that's, it's truly amazing. Like it's, um, 
Yeah, it's the integration too of the the hearing and the non-hearing. Mm-hmm. That's great that you put yeah. that into the film as well yeah. too, because you'll have those reactions and that that interaction between individuals mm-hmm. that would actually take place. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So that's so we we've staged that scene, and then when we finished, a lot of the deaf people told me that they wished something like this existed in New York and like an actual show like or a, like an actual a, space, like a venue that hosted yeah. like really loud like punk shows or something, you know. What is the experience for somebody who's deaf to go into a show like that? You're feeling the music? Yeah. I mean, deaf people are extremely sensitive to vibration. So, like, way more sensitive than hearing people are. So there's always this sense from the hearing community that deaf people just, like, have no relationship to sound. But in fact, like, deaf people's relationship to sound is, like, incredibly nuanced. So being hard of hearing, do you have that same sensitivity or not? I think I, yeah, on some More level. So. I mean, for me, like my, when I was in grad school, I, I definitely had this moment where I was like, I have a sensitivity to sound design. You like could, that is my strength in filmmaking. And I, and that was like yeah. a moment of kind of, of like, um, of just like, I don't know, some sort of like internal recognition of like, oh, this is the thing that I bring to the table when I'm in this editing room. Like this is, I'm hearing things that I feel like and I just I just had this experience actually before going to New York where I worked with a a sound guy and he was like I had a suggestion about something and he was like, ah, oh, nobody will care about that. And I was just like, What? Full of shit. Like, yeah. And I was just <laughs> like, What are you talking about? Like that's no, he said what he said something really specific and I got a little bit sassy with him. He said, um, Oh, it was like, you know, anytime that you cut in a, in a, like any sound clip where you cut the very end of, or the very beginning of the sound clip can do this little click. Yeah. And, and so I was, there was just this moment where we were working together and I was like, Oh, we need to just clean up the very end. Fade into it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, or like do these really slight adjustments. And he was like, yeah, most people don't care about that anymore. And I was just like, then they're terrible sound editors. Yeah, why are you doing this job? Right. I was just like, Go what away. are you talking about? <laughs> and, um, and, and he was a little bit like, whoa. And I was like. I guess I better do a good job. <laughs> yeah, it was just this moment where I was like, I'm not, sorry, I'm not backing down here. Like, this is like, come on. It's important. Well, yeah. by the way, this whole thing is about sound. So could we please get the oh, sound man. correct? And I have, I've had this experience a lot. Like when we did the 433 you know, the, the mythology that surrounds 433 is that, oh, it was all about the ambient sound. And, and yes, yes, but also um, I think that there's... Wait, what do you mean the 433? The John Cage's 433 gotcha. where, you know, the, the mythology that surrounds it is, is always this story or always this, like, repeated thing about... Um, how it was it's not that it's a silent music piece it's that the you know there's all this like ambient so- noise and that the audience is like making lots of noise as they're sitting there and so in the edit that i did i actually there's no there's absolutely no sound it's totally just like dead space whenever the audience is there and um the just, edit of which piece the the, the edit that i did of 433 your edit film. of 433 yeah. in the film i just like wanted to kind of negate the mythology just a little bit yeah and um but I had this experience where the 
the sound mixer when he showed up and I was like, I want you to record like the sound of everybody's like clothing rustling and all this stuff. He was just like, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and in fact, the next day he supposedly had food poisoning and didn't come. And I was like, like, "Uh." (laughs) I feel like I, I feel like I have this experience a lot where like sound people are kind of like, Oh man, no explosions. And I'm like, yeah, it's like the opposite, like as far away. I thought I was working on the rock. What is, what's going on? I have these experiences a lot where, you know, even though I'm hard of hearing and I wear hearing aids, I feel like sometimes when it comes to film or yeah, just that I'm, I'm actually am physically capable of hearing things that people seem to not, I have this experience a lot. Like in films, like real like you hear mistakes um no i mean no not necessarily but or subtle things subtle things or i mean actually in my films like like that example of working with the sound mixer and and hearing something and him being like and he can't even catch it yeah yeah i just i feel like i have this experience a lot where i'm i'll i'll mention something about sound or something that's happening with sound and people will be like whoa i didn't the other thing about that too is that it's your it's your work yeah. This is what this is how close you are to this thing that you like love. Of course, I walk into a studio and I see a sculpture and I know like right away whether or not it's tilted to the left too far and it's like half a centimeter wrong, you know? Yeah. You see it right away. So yeah. obviously you're gonna run into that. Yeah. I think the people that you work with just have to get to the point where they understand that it's it's an automatic yeah. and you're an artist. You you gotta see th- you see things the way you see it. It's yeah. totally fine too. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they work professionally in sound. <laughs> it should know, be like right? it should be a given. I think we're wrapping up. We're okay. we're coming coming to the end. Anyway, thank you very much for being on, Alison. Yeah, thank and you. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah.